Welcome to Life Beat, right to Life of Michigan's bi-weekly podcast going in-depth on pro-life news and issues. I'm your host, Chris Gast, RLM's Director of Communication and Education. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Uh, doing it a little early because I'm leaving for the National Right to Life Convention is Wisconsin uh, pretty soon after I'm done with this podcast. So uh, I'm going to keep it short and sweet, or I'll try to at least. Uh, just a couple of brief stories to talk about before we get into our feature today, which is the story of Bob Tank. Um, our Choose Life plate bill is on the desk of the governor. Uh, we don't know if Governor Snyder is going to sign it or veto it. Um, we might know maybe Friday, uh, but we really are not sure. He could do it at any moment. Uh, he could be doing it right now. Um, so uh, I, I wish I had some more news for you on that front, but I really don't have anything uh, I guess if we're leaning towards anything, it would probably be uh, a veto because we simply haven't really heard anything. We haven't had any indication, but you never know. Another news story I just wanted to briefly talk about. Our uh, Natalie in our office found an interesting article uh, because yesterday, Tuesday, June 27th, happened to be the one-year anniversary of Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt. And that's the case where they struck down the Texas abortion clinic regulations. Well, this article in this news uh, website called Refinery29, uh, which is a blog site, uh, caters to urban millennials. Uh, the name of the article was, This is How Abortion Ends in America. And in it, they had a really, uh, it was really not a very well done article, but they had one really funny part of it. They said that... Uh, you know, Roe v. Wade was, they keep trying to link uh, Roe v. Wade to the overall uh, you know, overall feminism, uh, women's empowerment, and trying to make the argument that uh, women can only use credit cards because of things like Roe v. Wade and, and other things. What does credit cards have to do with Roe v. Wade and abortion? Well, their argument is that since... Um, in America, it used to be the case that women, uh, single women, uh, or, or women had to get a permission of um, their spouse in order to take out a credit card. It used to be very difficult in some areas. And so in 1974, they passed legislation to require that any credit agency treats men and women equally. Uh, and so the article tries to make the argument that uh, it's thanks to things like Roe v. Wade that women can use credit cards. Well, I went back and actually looked, and the vote for this 1974 piece of legislation, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, was 355 to 1 in the U.S. House. And there was a voice vote in the U.S. Senate. They didn't even bother to count the votes. So basically it was unanimous. Uh, so I really don't see that uh, Roe v. Wade was that critical, you know, taking the life of unborn children was that critical part to getting, convincing Congress to let women have credit cards. Uh, so, uh, you know, we, we have an interesting article up on the blog, and the overall point of that blog post is simply that they can't talk about abortion. They can't talk about the unborn child. They they have a sense that they are losing momentum. There's an article in The Atlantic about Planned Parenthood saying uh, basically that Cecile Richards believes they can still win. That's not really confident rhetoric, is it, when you're believing you can still win it. 
And so they just have to throw everything they can against the wall, hoping something sticks, uh, hoping that, you know, threatening women that they might not have credit cards is the ticket to, uh, for example, keeping Planned Parenthood funding. Um, it's kind of ridiculous. And under all of it is the silly narrative that abortion is a, is a women's issue, a primarily women's issue. When you actually look at the polls, like we talked about uh, last episode with Gallup polling, men and women don't view abortion differently. And so it, it's really silly that they keep focusing on that aspect of it because it's just simply not working. After 44 years, women and men still have basically equal views on the issue of abortion. And so uh, they really need to change gears more if they think that talking about credit cards is going to help them justify tax-funded abortions. Anyway, let's get into our feature of the week, and that is the story of Bob Tank. Now, this is a story. It's on our website. I really encourage you to read the full story. I can only really do a summary here, and I'll just talk about the really important implications from it. Now, Bob's daughter is Genevieve Martin, who is our public affairs associate in our Lansing office, uh, who assists our legislative director, Ed Rivett. And uh, our Lansing office frequently gets calls about end-of-life situations. And when we get calls in the state office, we refer them there. Uh, usually there's some sort of legal conflict involved. And so Genevieve is just extremely well-versed in the issue overall, but dealing with personal conflicts. And so uh, she, you know, her father was dealing with uh, severe emphysema. Um, it was a terminal condition. He had, uh, you know, his doctor had said, oh, you only have a few months, uh, you know, a few months to live. You could go at any time. And, he, you know, he'd lived for more than a year. He's in pretty good health for his health condition. And so he was terminal, but not uh, on, on the death's door, if you know what I mean. And so... She was kind of expe half expecting, she said, dealing with um, some sort of conflict in the hospital, simply because she's had a front row seat to so much of it. And, uh, you know, the hospital, in that case, didn't, uh, didn't disappoint her expectations. So Bob had to go to the hospital one day because of shoulder pain, extreme shoulder pain. Turned out that he was dealing with a dangerous pulmonary embolism. Which and that could instantly cause your death, and so uh, he went to the ER. They stabilized him just as they would any other patient, and they got him into the uh, ICU. And so that's that's very positive when you're dealing with a very dangerous pulmonary embolism. That's where Genevieve said everything started to change because the hospital staff became aware of his end stage emphysema. Now. Uh, you know, their goal was simply to get him healed from his acute condition, which was the pulmonary embolism, so he could go home and continue to spend however many weeks or months or maybe even years he still had left to enjoy with his family. Uh, now, the first thing that uh, they started to notice was uh, some care details were beginning to be neglected by the hospital. Apparently overnight in the ICU, uh, her dad had what the hospital called an episode, which is very vague. And then everything really started to snowball from there. 
Uh, they noticed that Bob had an IV line, you know, hooked up that wasn't actually giving him any fluids. He was exhibiting signs of dehydration, and the hospital wasn't giving him any fluids in the IV. When uh, they questioned the doctor about it, they uh, the doctor told them that giving Bob fluids would quote only prolong the inevitable. So right here we see the hospital is refusing care that would actually help Bob in order to hasten his death. Now this is really critical here. Bob was conscious. Bob was aware. Bob was lucid. Bob was expressing his wishes. <laughs> Bob was not in a coma. Bob was saying, I want to live. I want treatment. And the hospital was going around his back and not delivering. Now, patient consent and autonomy is supposed to be the bedrock of medical ethics. And hydration is a simple, standard, humane medical care. It's not expensive. It's not difficult to do. Uh, the only time it shouldn't be given is when it actually will harm the patient. And, and giving Bob hydration was not going to be harming him. As Genevieve said, doctors and medical professionals are making choices about hastening death to save resources. And I believe out of some misguided ethic that saving people suffering is uh, their job, which it's not. It's not their job. Their job is to treat disease. It's the patient's job to decide how much suffering, how much treatment they want. So the hospital was going behind their back. They were asking uh, the family, all of the family members, Genevieve, Bob's uh, wife, which is Genevieve's mom, uh, to get a do not resuscitate order in Bob's file. And they all refused. Well, uh, so one day, Genevieve, because he was in there for 13 days, uh, Genevieve was going over his medical records with the nurse, and she said he has a do not resuscitate order in his file. She said when, he, when, when she and her father heard that, her father's eyes became wide, as wide as dinner plates. It, it dawned on her father, probably in that moment, um, you know, that he didn't ask for a DNR order, and yet that's what the hospital put in there. The hospital was overriding his own wishes, his own express wishes. He had a durable power of attorney of health care. If he wasn't conscious and able to express his wishes, his family, which was all united, knew exactly what he wanted, and the hospital was refusing to give it to him. I mean, so it just really, as, as we do in the article, you have to really just stop for a moment and imagine yourself. You're in the hospital, you're sick, uh, you have an expectation that the hospital is going to treat you and hopefully send you home soon, and, and that's what your most fervent desire is. And then suddenly you discover that this hospital staff, which is charged with keeping you alive, doesn't want you alive. They want you to die. They think you should die. Suddenly, you know, this society that talks so much about personal choice and personal autonomy and you be you and it's all about you uh, suddenly has no use for your choices anymore as soon as it becomes inconvenient. And so uh, the medical community, which you know doesn't really take the Hippocratic Oath as seriously as it used to, instead of their mission being saving your life, their mission is now uh, to care for the community. And you are no longer a member of the community in good standing and worth their care. 
Now, uh, as it happened, they were able to get the DN order off his file. Um, and then, you know, at that point, you're still concerned. Like, say the DNR order or the DNR order was removed. What if the hospital doesn't really do a good job giving, uh, trying to resuscitate him if his heart stops for whatever reason? Um, you couldn't be more cynical at that point. But, uh, of course, uh, you can't be cynical enough sometimes when it comes to these sorts of things. Uh, eventually, the, uh, the the hospital staff just grew tired of it and the conflict. They couldn't split Bob's family against him. And so uh, the final injustice came. A doctor uh, threatened to take their, their entire family to court uh, the following morning unless they forced Bob into hospice against his will. And so, uh, unfortunately, even though uh, Genevieve is certainly not a, a person who isn't willing to stand up when the situation requires it. At that point, the family was faced with uh, the deteriorating uh, health in the hospital, and they, they just didn't want to be in a situation where some judge uh, basically forbids them from seeing their father, and their father dies with none of their family around them. Uh, and so when you're faced with that sort of dilemma, even if you did everything right, you're all, you, you know, the patient expressed the wishes. He has uh, an advanced directive. Crucially, it needs to be a durable power of attorney to health care in Michigan. That's what you need to have. Bob had that. Everyone's united, and it didn't matter. And faced with the potential result of their, of their parent dying, um, you know, their family forbidden to see him, you know, what would you do in that situation? Is the law going to be on your side? The hospital staff certainly isn't. And so they relented. Hospital took away Bob's BiPAP machine that was helping him breathe. And then a few hours later, uh, on the morning of September 27th, 2016, Bob was dead. Now, uh, Genevieve's story is is not unique. And, uh, you know, we're dealing with two pieces of legislation here that would fix uh, some of what Genevieve dealt with, but... Uh, one of these leg- pieces of legislation deals with a problem that goes even beyond Genevieve's story. That's, com- you know, re- completely unbelievable. So the first piece of legislation uh, is called Simon's Law. It was inspired by a story in a legislation uh, out of Kansas dealing with secret do not resuscitate orders, and that's just a heinous practice. You know, uh, that should be something a patient or a patient's advocate acting on the patient's wishes puts in the file, and some, so many patients. Are happy are happy to do that because that's what they want. They they've reached the end of their life and and that's the decision they've made. Some patients, however, want the hospital to attempt to try to save their life, and that is entirely understandable. And the hospital ought to respect that. Hospital doesn't shouldn't be able to override the wishes of patients uh, or their advocates. Or in the case of Simon's Law, the parents of a small child who the hospital deemed life unworthy of life. Um, and so that piece of legislation would deal with that. Uh, the idea the hospital is lying to you in an attempt to end your life is uh, just frankly ridiculous. And that bill ought to be passed unanimously. There's no excuse on that. The second bill is a, is a similar situation, and it can only be described as truly Kafkaesque. So in Bob's case, the doctor threatened them to uh, threaten to take them to court to their face, okay? 
the doctor gave them some warning, gave them some time to uh, think about their options, although obviously they should have never um, threatened to take him to court in the first place in Bob's particular situation. In some cases, hospitals are taking patients and patient advocates to court in secret. Taking them to court in secret. What they're doing is going to court and getting a guardian appointed to override the patient or the patient's family's wishes. And so the patient's family is showing up in the hospital the next day and the hospital waving a piece of paper in their face saying, we're in charge now, you can't be here. Can you imagine that shock? Can you imagine the shock that Genevieve's family might have had? Uh, had they just come into the hospital one day and the hospital said, we're in charge of Bob now, uh, implied we want Bob to die, leave. You know, two fundamental bedrocks of our rights as Americans, not just in terms of end-of-life situations, but overall, are due process of law and the presumption of innocence. Due process of law means you can't be deprived of uh, your life, your liberty, your property without a fair legal process. Uh, really, uh, secret courts, uh, you know, star chambers, are, are travesties. And it's resulting in dead patients. And that entire thing, that entire idea just savages the concept of due process of law. How can anyone be taken to court in secret in America? It's ridiculous. Lawyers and judges who participate that ought not to have any part in our judicial system. It's a gross violation of basic rights. People have a right to be represented. It's an absolute right. It's a constitutional right. And it's ridiculous. And this idea that uh, you know, the patient's best interest is to die, uh, that's just twisted. Um, you know, the, the basic presumption of innocent is uh, the government should have to prove that you are uh, guilty of something. In the case of end-of-life situations, the presumption should be that the patient uh, should be alive, that living is in the best interest of the patient and not dying. But these secret courts flip the script and say the patient's uh, best interest is to die and uh, we now have to have an argument to justify them being alive. And who's really arguing for the patient at that point uh, when the family is completely unaware of what's going on? And so the second bill would prevent secret courts from overriding patients' wishes and it would restore a basic presumption that it's in a best, uh, patient's best interest to be alive. That bill ought to be unanimous, too. There's no excuse. And uh, I don't understand why hospitals would even do that, to do that in secret, and that they not think that this is going to get out. And uh, one thing that I just really want to focus on is what what is in the long-term interest, best interest of the hospital here? If the hospital thinks it's in their long-term best interest to kill off this patient for rationing resources or whatnot... Don't they think that families are going to find out and tell their stories? I can't tell you uh, when we shared this story uh, that many, how many people shared similar stories with us, even nurses and people who work in these facilities. You know, all that negative trust that hospitals are creating is going to come back to bite them hard in the rear end 
Why don't they realize that? Why do you think it's worth saving a few bucks over some simple medications, in the case of Bob Tank or others, when it's going to, uh, this trust that is uh, being eroded is going to harm them incredibly in more ways than just financial down the road? Now, before we finish, we do have to point out that, as, as Genevieve will point out, that there are real situations where patient advocates can't let go and they are no longer making decisions in the best interest of patients. That certainly happens. There is a place in the court system to make sure that there should be a presumption that the patient it's in the patient's best interest uh, to be alive, but there are situations where providing him medical care, medical care is truly futile and is actually harming the patient. Now, those are real legal disputes, but they must, they absolutely must be approached fairly in court in the light of day, not in secret and not in service to medical cost-cutting. Genevieve will be the first to acknowledge that, but that certainly wasn't the case for her. Now, she said that uh, ultimately... Uh, even though her fight for her father's life was unsuccessful, um, it was definitely worth it. Uh, she said that, you know, in my opinion, uh, quote, in my opinion, my dad needed every moment of the 13 days to make peace with God, unquote. Uh, Genevieve's father was just not ready to go. He was not ready to die yet. And so she, uh, she believes that he was able to, um, in part because they fought with the hospital and at least uh, was able to get him a few more days. Now, hopefully, Bob's case, uh, which is very much real, uh, and uh, even more extreme cases will be impossible in the state. But, uh, but that's up to us, working through the legislative process. And when those bills uh, come up for a vote, we'll let you know. And, of course, uh, Bob's story and other stories like it will be uh, very important, and uh, you ought to be telling these stories. Hospitals uh, should never put themselves in these sign of horrible situations by acting so poorly. Uh, it's not in anyone's interest to take patients to court in secret, to put secret orders in their file uh, to make sure they end up dead quicker. It's terrible. All right, that's all the time we have for this edition of LifeBeat. Join us again in two weeks, the weekend of July 14th, where our feature will be Senator Debbie Stabenow and her record on abortion. We're doing a series on social media highlighting that, and so we'll give it to you there in the podcast. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful weekend, and enjoy your Independence Day.